Far less than 1% of all short sales would be a so-called naked short. So from an issuer's perspective, how do they look at that data and dissect it and say, well, I shouldn't really be worried because this is probably a market maker running some sort of strategy. Well, the market maker is now having to hedge that position. And so market makers will tend to hedge positions by buying and shorting stock. Welcome to the Exchange Feed Podcast. I'm your host, Roy Wifwan, Manager Client Success, based in Montreal. In this episode titled Falling Short, we'll be discussing the concept of short selling, the mechanics behind it, the existing regulatory framework surrounding short selling in Canada, as well as the implications to listed issuers. Joining me for this discussion is Doug Clark, Managing Director of Equity Product Design, TMX Markets. Doug, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Roy. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion because our recent Instagram poll kind of revealed this topic to be of particular interest to listed issuers. We have a lot to unpack here, so let's not waste too much time delving into it. The idea of short selling is is one which is quite polarized, dog, and people's perspective on it varies from one stakeholder group to the next. But you know, whether you're a listed issuer, a full-service business law firm, uh, an asset management company, an investment dealer, or even a stock exchange, like it's the case with us, it's really important to have an in-depth understanding of what short selling actually is and how it works. So Doug, could you talk us through the concept of short selling, the mechanics involved, and why it actually exists? Yeah, great. The uh, The whole idea of short selling is it's it's an opportunity to invest in such a way that you're effectively betting on a company not doing well. It doesn't mean the company have it, the stock has to go down. It can be not doing well versus other stocks. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the notion is at times in a market, you will see a company that looks like it's overvalued. Doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad company, but it's a very emotional thing. And when a company, when you know a CEO or a CFO of a company hears that their stock is being shorted, it's why don't you like me? Why do you hate me? When you're shorting a stock, you're not necessarily saying this this company is absolute trash. This company should go to zero, but that's the way that CFOs and CFOs seem to perceive it, and that's a natural emotional um, way of of understanding that somebody has bet against you. It's going to help a little bit if you understand why people are shorting. So we'll get into some of the strategies in a minute. But just understand that this isn't 100% somebody saying, boy, you know what, Roy, I think your company is terrible. I think it's going to zero. I think you've got a bad idea. I think you mismanaged the firm. That is not the case in 95% of all short selling. Occasionally it is, but most of the time it's it's far more nuanced than that. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just at this point in time, I think the market is overvaluing you relative to your short to midterm prospects. Thank you very much, Doug. I I think you touched on one of the applications there vividly, which is price correction in the case of overvaluation. Can you think of any other strategies that short selling would be used for? Yeah, so there's a few and and relative value. When I'm looking at um, an an index of stocks, if if I own a portfolio of stocks and my mandate is to own all the names in the S&P 500 or the TSX S&P Composite Index. And I think, okay, I, I own them all, but I want to, that's my mandate. That's my beta, but I want to outperform my mandate. So I'm going to look and I'm going to say, well, 
In Canada, there's six banks in that index. And I think that for some reason, Bank A is going to outperform Bank B over the next six months. So I'm going to sell some of my Bank B stock and I'm going to buy some Bank A stock. I may even go short Bank B. And again, it's not that I think this bank is going out of business. It's uh, within a portfolio, I'm just trying to outperform. There's statistical arbitrage, which is just a quantitative strategy where I take two companies. I might take Dell and IBM and I might say, the price of IBM is always somewhere between one and a half and two times the price of Dell. It never really comes outside of that band. So when the price of IBM gets close to two times the price of Dell, I'm gonna short sell IBM. I'm gonna uh, buy Dell until that ratio comes closer to that one and a half, at which point I might reverse the, the trade. And I'll do that on you know, 50, 100 different trading pairs and I'll keep doing it until the bands break and until that relationship is no longer there. I might adjust the new to new levels. I might just stop trading that pair altogether. But that is just a quant coming out of a black box engine saying these two stocks trade in parallel. They have a little band here. Sell when it's at the near at the high end of the band. Buy when it's at the the, the low end. There are market making strategies. So sometimes short sells come out of the fact that people really like your stock. So if you look during the, the um, Reddit craze, particularly down in the US in January of 2021, you had retail investors buying stocks like GameStop and AMC, Hertz, and they weren't just buying the stock, they were buying options. They were buying call options in the market. And when they buy call options, they buy them against the market maker. Well, the market maker is now uh, having to hedge that position. And so market makers will tend to hedge positions by buying and shorting stock, depending on the option position that the, the market maker ends up in. They, they may have to go short stock to hedge versus the option position that they have. So it might be something that they're just forced into. And then there are swap trades. You might own a basket of stocks and you don't get um, favorable tax on dividends. So for a short period of time, you will lend me your stock. I will get the dividends. I will pay a lower tax and then we'll split the difference during the process of that swap or derivative trade. One of us ends up long a basket of stock and one of us ends up short. It looks like somebody has taken a short position in the market. They really haven't. There isn't an economic short, but some of the data that comes out to the issuers, it looks like, hey, there's 50 million you know, shares of my stock has gone short. That's not necessarily the case and it's the same with market makers. So when you look at short interest, and this is I think what, what gets investors and more so the, uh, the corporate executives upset is they look at the short interest in their name and they see that there's X percent of my float is short. Some of that is real and it's a hedge fund that is betting against your company as a pure bet. I don't think the company is gonna do well but a lot of it is related to market making, it's related to swaps, it's related to uh, relative value or statarb strategies that are less than a pure uh, bet against the company. So those numbers can be misleading unless you know how much of the short is a real short with real economic interest against the company versus a short position that is completely hedged somewhere else. ETFs, for example, if I'm an ETF market maker, somebody is selling me ETFs all day long, so I'm buying the ETF. To hedge that position, I'll go out and short sell the cash basket, which may have a lot of your stock in it. I'm long the ETF, I'm short the cash basket, I'm net flat, but it looks like I'm short 
you know, 75,000 shares of XYZ. I'm actually neutral XYZ because of my ETF holdings, but to the company, they're going to see an increased short interest. So there, there's a number of strategies, some of which are real short, but that's a small portion of the market. It, uh, you know, short selling comes with more risk than being long a stock. You have to be far more certain of your position in the market. And so there is not a really large portion of the market that takes short positions in stocks as a full on unhedged position. And most of the data as a result is uh, exaggerates the the existence of shorts on your name. IROC kind of published these uh, short sale trading statistics summary, as well as a consolidated short position report, which is what you alluded to uh, just uh, moments ago on a semi-monthly basis on the website. So if I'm an issuer and I'm looking at that data, um, how do I interpret the data that's being disclosed, right? You just mentioned that some of it may be real short, some of it may not be real short. So from an issuer's perspective, how do they look at that data and dissect it and say, well, I shouldn't really be worried because this is probably a market maker running some sort of strategy and stuff like that? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, it's kind of a mixture of science and art. There are firms out there that provide data and they'll go to various entities in the market, the, the back office entities doing the clearing of trades, doing the, the custody of trades, and they will try and get information from the asset managers to say, what is your real short position? Some of which they'll get, some of which they'll infer. They'll also try and infer what the market maker position is by what has gone on in the option markets. They'll try and get information around swaps, but it's far from perfect. So when you see the data, take it with a large grain of salt, if you see an uptick in in option volume on your name at the same time that you see an increase in shorts, that might just be an uptick in, in market making positions. Uh, if you see a, an uptick in the short position in your stock just before you pay a dividend, that might just be related to dividend arbitrage that is uh, a very short term position and they're likely to unwind days after your dividend is paid out and it's really just kind of a tax optimization play. It's not a bet on your stock. It's just, I can um, work with somebody else who's got a better tax rate than me to improve my tax rate. Um, so it's it's far from perfect. There's been a lot of talk in both Canada and the US uh, around improving the data. One of the things in, in both markets is institutions that uh, take on a certain long position, they buy XYZ stock, more than five or 10%, depending on the jurisdiction, have to report that. And they typically have something like 30 days to report their position. Um, not all, some pension plans are exempt, but most of the, the funds have to report it. Shorts don't have to report it. So there's been a movement afoot, particularly from the SEC in the US, and I know the Canadian regulators watch this closely, to talk about should we add to these so-called 13F reports short positions and the argument against it is that a the reason you have to report these positions is it's important for voting on proxies and any annual um, meeting type of uh, board of director votes and like you need to have the information of who owns the stock and that's why you have the 13f in the first place but the the other um, argument that sort of carries today from some of the biggest investors in the world is they are scared of being bullied if they short the wrong stock. And what I mean by that, and we'll use a US example, is if I, as a large um, retail bank, have an asset manager 
and they decide for very good reasons to go short, say Ford Motor Company. And maybe they're going short Ford and they're buying General, General Motors at the same time. And the reason they're doing it is what we talked about earlier. For some reason, Ford is relatively overvalued in their mind. Maybe the stock's up 10% on the year and General Motors is flat. The asset manager says, I don't mind Ford, but I think General Motors over the next six months is going to do better. So I'll short sell Ford and I'll buy General Motors. The concern is there is going to be a backlash when XYZ Bank with their asset manager says, we short sold Ford. Ford's a great American company. It's apple pie, it's baseball, it's all of these things. And so you get the CEO of Ford on Twitter or any of these other social media platforms saying, why is Bank X short selling our stock? Do they not believe in America? Do they not believe in innovation? Do they not believe in the American worker? Um, and it becomes almost a, you know, a, a social pushback against shorting selling stocks. And there's reasons we don't want to have that. The academic literature clearly demonstrates that there is value in our markets to, to having people be able to short sell stocks. It keeps stock prices in check. It adds a price discovery mechanism. So you don't get stocks becoming so grossly overpriced that it's bad for the market in general. It's bad for investors in general. You can think of companies like Enron and Nortel and others where having short sellers come to the market is actually good for the market. So you don't want to have, you know, a bullying ability to just to keep short sales out of the market. That's not great. You just want to make sure that those short sellers that are in the market are not doing anything nefarious. So that's why, you know, issuers do have some legitimate concerns around what are short sellers trying to do? Are you trying to create a death spiral, create the appearance that I can't meet my bills, that I'm not a company to do business with, that you shouldn't be signing contracts because I'm going out of business and you're harming my actual ability to do business by cratering my stock. Doesn't happen very often, but the fact it doesn't happen very often doesn't mean we shouldn't protect from it. Unfortunately, the, the data to your original question, the data is still, you know, it's, it's very much an art versus a science of figuring out exactly who is short and what their intent is. And that's the challenge for the regulator as much as it is for the CEO or the investment relations guy. Thank you very much, Doug. I think you you kind of really summarized that for us. Uh, I was just going to mention that for TSX and TSX Venture issuers, they can actually access the consolidated short position report from the uh, short interest module in TSX InfoSuite. So that's a complimentary trading platform which we offer to our listed issuers. So that data kind of plots the short volumes and the short interest over a selected time frame as a measure of the trend uh, in shareholders our short holders perspective towards a stock and the ability to close out those short positions but like you said it's going to be an art that's just the raw data it's it's the essential thing is understanding what comprises of what that data comprises of so thank you very much for that doug yeah and i think your your point there on the trend is a really good one it's hey i don't care why it looks like 25 percent of my stock is short if that's been true for two and a half years but if it suddenly goes up to 30 that's when I want to have a concern and say, hey, what happened? Maybe it was a new dividend. Maybe there was some swap that happened. But that's when the IR person is going to want to start calling, whether it's their bank's um, 
partners, whoever their banking relationships are, or calling folks like ourselves and just asking the question like, what is going on in the market that might have resulted in a large uptick in the short interest in my name? Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about naked shorting. Um, I know just about a couple of weeks back, I got a call from an issuer who was genuinely concerned about the likelihood of someone going naked short on their stock. So my question for you is this, what is a naked short? Do they actually exist and to what extent? Yeah, it's a great question and it differs from geography to geography. Effectively, in most geographies, there's some form of rule that says when you short a stock, the expectation is that you can settle the trade, whether that's T plus two or whatever the, the usual settlement time is for a trade. So if I'm going to short a stock on the TSX today, the expectation is that I'm either going to have bought the stock back in time or I'm going to be able to borrow stock to make sure that I can settle that trade in two days time. For the most part, that is true. In Canada, the rule is you just have to have a reasonable belief that you can uh, clear the trade. In the US, there's the rule is slightly different. It says that for less liquid names, you have to actually go out and borrow before you short. The The difference there is, is fairly negligible. The, the, you know, IROC has said you have to have a reasonable belief you can you can um, settle a trade and they look for trends. They don't look for single failed trades. They look to see if a given end client, a given institutional client or a broker routinely fails trades. And if they do, then there are um, penalties that are in place. In some markets, you have to pre-borrow on all trades. In some markets, you have to put up more cash than in other markets. But effectively, for the vast majority of short selling, there is rules that you are at least expected to be able to settle. If not, you've already borrowed the stock. And so that, by and large, is not naked shorting. But there are exemptions to those rules. And the reason there's exemptions is because of market making. And so if you think about options markets, for example, or ETF markets, market makers have to be able to short stock at any given time to hedge positions if they're going to stand in and make markets all day long in a given option or ETF. And so as a result, regulators have typically said to market makers, you don't have to have that pre-borrow. It's too expensive to have inventory on every name you're making a market on at all times. Um, we want you to, to settle and it's in the best interest of those firms to settle those trades as well because it's more capital efficient. They don't have to put up uh, deposits of the clearing corp when they fail, those trades will occasionally be technically naked shorts, which is to say they haven't borrowed, they don't have stock, but as you get towards the end of the day or the position gets larger, they will then go to the to the lending market and try and borrow those stocks, and they typically will. The percentage of stock that is naked short in either Canada or the US is incredibly tiny. It's difficult to get an exact number, but it is far less than 1% of all short sales would be a so-called naked short. It is typically around exemptions. Typically those trades still settle T plus two. Um, occasionally they will slide a couple of days. Uh, sometimes when there is a squeeze on a stock, that's when things get a little bit more difficult. But contrary to what you would read on social media about naked short selling being a massive billions of shares a day type of event. 
it is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of overall short volume would be naked shorts and they are covered almost immediately. And for hedge funds that are largely believed to be the ones that are shorting stocks and trying to drive companies out of business, they're not allowed to short naked at all. They would have to have that, that stock ready to settle um, when they make the trade. It's really only market maker type exemptions that allow for naked shorting at all. So it is, you know, again, it, there's an emotional fear in the market because I think that the, the potential harm of naked shorts is, is overemphasized. It is not nearly the problem that people think it is. I know we just touched on naked shorting, but I wanted us to explore the idea of failed trades and the buying process. You know, I know in December of last year, IROC published a report on its failed trade study, uh, which was the second one that he published so far following the initial study that was done back in 2007. The study kind of found 30% of counterparty short positions or short sales was the reason for failed trades. From your perspective, should issuers be worried about the lack of settlement on trades due to short selling? Or maybe just touch a little bit on the current buying process and how that works to mitigate that risk. Yeah, so what happens is if, if I sell a stock and it may be that I've sold it long and that I actually have the shares somewhere else and they can't get delivered in time, so it's it's not always shorts. It's mostly shorts where somehow there's a fail. So. T plus two comes along and for some reason, the stock that I uh, I wanted to, to settle with isn't there. It may be that I did a short sell and I had borrowed the stock, but between me selling that stock and settling that stock, the, the client that I had borrowed it from suddenly took it back. They needed it back because they were going to sell their own shares. Um, and typically what happens when I go to a bank is they act on behalf of their retail clients. So I might go to bank XYZ borrow 100,000 shares of a stock and they don't realize that the client is five minutes away from selling that stock. So they lend it to me and then the retail client comes in and surprise, I want to sell it. Now that lending desk who told me I can have 100,000 shares has to take it back and they don't have any more shares. I've already sold the stock. So now my trade's going to fail. And now I have to go and find another 100,000 shares either by buying stock in the market or, or borrowing stock from somewhere else. So when that happens, there are procedures and around the world, there's sort of a spectrum of how quickly and how harsh the rules are to buy back stock. In some markets, the minute you are short stock, they force you to buy it back, even if it means you're gonna you know, have a, a, a demand for stock that far away supply and you're gonna move a stock 5% because you have to do it instantly in other markets, they give you a little bit more leniency, a little bit more time to buy it back. It's not that you don't have to buy it back, but the idea is we don't want to have volatility introduced to the market just because of some structural uh, situation. So we're going to give you a day or two to buy the stock back so you, you don't have a, a price impact that, uh, that wouldn't otherwise be there. Um, Canada is not amongst the most aggressive. I think the more aggressive one countries tend to be in Asia. So we have a little more leniency. Now the issuer community would, you know, looks at that and says, well, hold on a second, you've failed the trade. You should have to buy it in right away. And again, from an emotional perspective, I get that. Why are you allowed to fail a trade? But there are reasons. There are, you know, human errors. There are um, 
people have changed accounts and it hasn't been updated correctly. Uh, somebody else's trade failed, so my trade failed, even though I was long the stock. So there are legitimate reasons at times. So, you know, there's a balancing act of how quickly, how aggressively do I want to force the market to buy back shares versus how much leniency do I want to have? Obviously, you can't just say we'll buy it back when, whenever you want because then you just get into everybody will make it short and buy back, you know, in a year's time. They don't care. So, you know, it, it becomes a bit of a balancing act between the regulators, the clearing corps, the large investors in a market to say, what do we think the optimal time is? We're not the, the most lenient either. There are countries that are far more lenient in the buyback than we are. You know, are we in the right spot? I, I don't know. But I don't think that it is a massive um, risk to issuers that there are people who are systemically failing trades. IROC does watch that very, very closely. And if they see repeat offenders, they have a whole different level of uh, buy-in and non-failed non trade obligations than somebody who happens to fail a trade once a year. Also, there's just one thing that I wanted to clarify on. There's some information that's being put out there around direct market access accounts, otherwise known as DMA accounts, where it said that an individual can trade through these accounts, maybe with a European broker, for instance, uh, with their activities going unchecked, effectively circumventing the rules associated with short selling in Canada. What's your take on that? And maybe tell our listeners a little bit about what a DMA account is and how it works. Yeah, so there, there's two ways really to affect a trade. And it used to be for many years, you would call up a trading desk and say, I have 100,000 IBM I want to sell. And then in the early 2000s, uh, with technology advancements, the investors had the ability to input those orders on their own computer. So large pension plans and asset managers have um, trading systems, so-called uh, electronic management systems or execution management systems, EMSs, and they can just do their own trades. And as a result, the trader at the broker dealer, the large bank, doesn't get that order and have the ability to see what's going on the same way they do when the client's trading directly, but the compliance departments do. So I think in the early years of what we'll call electronic trading, there were probably a few regulatory loopholes. It was tougher for the firms to understand what their end clients were doing. But over the last 15 years, the, um, the ability of the biggest brokers to carefully watch what's happening within their DMA, within their direct market access platforms has uh, grown significantly. They have all kinds of electronic tests to see if clients are routinely short selling, are they routinely failing trades, are they selling stock beyond what we think is a reasonable level, are they moving stocks, are they high pricing stocks, are they so-called spoofing. So if anything, the, the DMA uh, accounts are held to the same standard as they were. There are just a lot of checks and there's a lot of uh, ongoing dialogue with, between the brokers and the clients. Probably wasn't true in 2002, 2003, but certainly by the time 2007 came along, the DMA clients are held to the exact same standard as clients that are going directly to a Canadian uh, trader desk. And so there's a lot of noise around there. I would say that is 100% false. There is really no difference in the compliance or regulatory scrutiny over a trade that comes in through a, via, a, a European broker 
and then one that comes directly to a Canadian trading desk. Thank you, Doug, for setting the uh, the record uh, straight on DME accounts. Um, just a couple of things before we wrap it up. I just wanted us to touch a little bit on, um, you know, activist short selling, which I know it may not be uh, prevalent as it's, you know, usually made to be, but we just, just wanted to get a sense of whether or not that's something that can be regulated or should issuers be worried about it or what kind of action can an issuer take if there may be a subject of activists short selling? Yeah, so activists are on both sides of the market. An activist will look at a company and they'll, they'll determine that it's misvalued. They might determine that it's undervalued. Uh, they might determine that it's overvalued. Well, as you can imagine, when a CEO sees an investor come out and tell the world how great their company is, they don't get upset. If anything, they, they get pretty happy about it and they'll help to amplify the story. But when it's the opposite, when it's a, a, an investor that thinks that a stock is overpriced, the CEO of that company does get upset um, because suddenly they're talking down their stock and nobody likes you to be out bashing my stock, my company, particularly if, you know, I invest a hundred hours a week into it and, you know, it, it's, it's my lifeblood. It's, it's my sole reason for existence. That's tough to take. So the, you get the emotional response. I think what when the regulators look at it, what they're really looking at is, are the facts, the data that the activist is putting out, is it reasonable? They're more concerned about somebody that is putting out nonsense, that is misrepresenting the truth and trying to profit off of it. And so they're worried about a couple of things. One is, is what you're putting out the truth and B, are you trading at the same time that you're on CNBC? So they've, they've made rule changes in a variety of, of uh, jurisdictions, Canada, the US and elsewhere. One, when you see a hedge fund or an asset manager on TV and they're talking about a company, they have to immediately disclose whether they have a position in the company, are they long or short the company? And so if I see an asset manager bashing a company and I know they're short the company, okay, they might be a little conflicted there's been a lot of talk, and I think this is one area of interest of if you are an activist investor and you have to figure out how to, you know, very clearly define that and you're out actively talking about a stock, should you not be able to trade that stock for 10 or 15 days while you're doing that or after you've done that? And that forces you to, to make sure that you're not just profiting off of your own uh, airtime and your media attention, but you're giving the, the, the market a chance to actually go in, look at your story and do their own analysis and see if your facts make sense or your data makes sense. Um, and so it gets rid of that sort of short-term incentive to just try and make a media splash. It's a tough one. You know, it, you've, you've seen regulators globally say, well, maybe we'll put rules in place for activists that are short stock, but not long stock. And you kind of wonder, well, why the asymmetry why am I allowed to talk a stock up and profit off of it, but I'm not allowed to actively point out what might be deficiencies in the stock? But that's largely driven by feedback from the issuers, and the issuers only get upset when you talk down the stock, and I think we all understand why. Thanks, Doug. Uh, I think it's great that we're uncovering the whole concept of, of short selling, and I think sessions like these definitely help educate our listeners. But 
we still recognize that short selling continues to generate a lot of buzz. You know, you have stakeholder groups that are calling for increased regulation. In fact, as recently as last December, the CSC and IROC put out that joint staff notice on short selling just to gather feedback uh, on from stakeholders uh, around the current regulatory framework. In August of last year, you mentioned, I think you alluded to that, uh, around the guidance that was put out by IROC on participants' obligation to make sure that they have a reasonable expectation to settle a trade if it's if it's a short sale. What, in your opinion, do you think, uh, you know, this could actually lead to as far as changes to the current regulatory framework is concerned? Uh, it's a great question. Um, I always always careful when I try and uh, predict what the regulators are doing. I don't want to be seen to be telling them what to do. Um, I, I do think that there is a very open question about where we fit on that spectrum of buybacks. Should we be a little bit more aggressive than buybacks? Are we maybe slightly too far on the lenient side of the sort of global scale? So I think that's a question that's going to get most closely, uh, most carefully revisited. Um, and then I think that there are going to be some thoughts around the whole notion of activist investors and are you going to have holding periods, whether you're long or short stock. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there is some sort of a 10-day holding period if your position is more than X percent of a stock and you're doing any media tours. Um, those are kind of the areas where I think it's going to become, um, you're going to see some potential movement from the regulator they may clean up the data a little bit um there, there's certainly been a push to go to from semi-weekly to daily so there's there's always a bit of you know pushback on how fine of the data is is too transparent you know transparency is great but um you know there are certain areas where you don't need 100 transparency because it impedes people from actually making larger investments or unwinding larger investments but they could look at, at making the um, the timelines a little tighter than two weeks. They might go to weekly or something as well. So if you were to leave our, thank you very much, Doug. If you were to leave our listeners with one piece of advice on this topic of short selling, what would it be? You need to be aware of shorts, but you can't be hyper-focused on shorts. I think there is definitely a narrative on social media, Reddit in particular, but elsewhere that, short sellers are distorting the value of stocks 99 point something percent of the time that is absolutely not true um i think you need to embrace that short sellers are just trying to bring uh differentiated um information to the market and in general they are actually good for the market in that they stop stocks from getting overpriced and to the extent that stocks don't become overpriced and we don't have excess volatility it allows everybody to be a little bit more confident in the market, but don't ignore short selling at all. Short selling is telling you something. And if you do see a big uptick in short interest in your stock, you know, it, it might mean that you have to do a better job of explaining to the market what's going on in your company. It might mean you might have to explain why was there a shortfall in revenues third quarter? Maybe the street didn't fully understand your story. So pay attention, but don't become so overwhelmed that it's all you think about you know day to day we should be running our businesses and keeping sort of a half an eye on short selling every once in a while but if it is all you're thinking about and if you are convinced that that's the only thing driving the price of your stock 
it's probably doing you more harm than good. Well, Doug, I really appreciate your time today and for sharing your insights. And I hope today's discussion provides some much needed clarity to our TSX and TSXV listed issuers around the concept of short selling. Appreciate your time, Roy. That's great.